in the most uncomfortable position, but I did it because I'm like, I can see my cat out on the balcony and see if she jumps. As soon as I sat down, she comes in. She's on the couch now with me. Yeah, <laughs> And like, you're already settled too, I'm right? Like, I'm committed. I can't move now. <laughs> She's making her biscuits. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. Allegedly. <laughs> technically? <laughs> I hope technically. <laughs> I hope everything technically goes well. Knock on what? Dana's story, is it or isn't it? That's what you titled this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It yeah, is your story. Called it. it is it my is? story. Yeah. <laughs> but is it or isn't it? You'll find out, I guess. Okay. I, I didn't code this one very well. Okay. Like I normally do. <laughs> First, I want to say hello. Hello. I'm Dana. Kristen. This is The Darker Side of Life. This is the podcast where two best friends tell each other some strange, weird, unexplained, creepy, disturbing, dark stories, but we don't tell each other what we're going to talk about. Yes. Also, I think I just said my name. I don't think I said this is Kristen. <laughs> I think I just said <laughs> Kristen. <laughs> You're like raising your hand here. <laughs> Present. Here. <laughs> That's okay. People Sorry. know who you are. I, I, I hope feel so. They can deduce that, I'm sure. <laughs> Our listeners are pretty smart. <laughs> They're very smart. They're awesome. And I want to thank all of our listeners for forgiving us for skipping an episode <laughs> recently. Um, my work schedule is really, really hectic at the end of June, and I just did not have time to record and edit an episode to get out. I could have done it, but then it would have been, you know, just kind of short and crappy, and I don't want to do that. I'd rather we have like a really that. nice, like long, good story. Yes. So so thank you for being patient with us. And I hope you enjoy the story this week because I'm going to talk about the lost cosmonauts. What? The lost cosmonauts. Okay. It's like part history story, part conspiracy theory. Sweet. Mm-hmm. So here's my sources. There's an article from NASA, nasa.gov. Collect hard. NASA. <laughs> A story from collectspace.com, a story from the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, a story from Vice, and an accompanied um, short little podcast from them, a Reader's Digest article from 1965 reprinted by Aerospace Web, um, an article from the Sun newspaper from Elizabethtown, New York, not the Sun tabloid that you see in supermarkets here. Oh, yes. Like a real newspaper, not... Not a tabloid. And two articles from NPR, um, one original article and then a follow-up. And, of course, a Wikipedia entry for names and dates and timelines and Basic such. info, yes. And other sources, as I will note as I talk about them. Sweet. We begin on October 4th, 1957. The Soviet Union successfully launched Sputnik, the very first artificial satellite, into space. And it was a huge deal. Not just yep. for obvious reasons that we know of today, like us having more satellites that monitor weather and GPS mm-hmm. and cell phone technology and Ross Geller's Halloween costume yeah, inspiration. That's the very <laughs> first thing I actually thought of. I knew you would think of that every time I said, <laughs> yep. the minute I said Sputnik, I thought to myself, you're going to be thinking about Ross Geller. Yep, Ross Geller and his potato costume. But Sputnik's launch came during the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It officially started the space race of the 60s and basically ushered in a new era in the world known as the Space Age. 
The Americans were also planning to put up their own satellite around this time and were absolutely shocked that the USSR got to it first. Because officials here figured that the Soviets were behind technologically after losing World War II. And Americans feared that the Soviet Union might have the technology to develop and launch ballistic missiles now and nuclear weapons at the United States. Uh-oh. The Americans were not very happy about this. Nope. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy gave his famous We Choose to Go to the Moon speech in Texas, declaring that Americans would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. By the way, that kind of technology was not invented at the time he gave the speech. No, so, <laughs> so he really heated up the space race. Kind of took a chance on that one. I guess so. It turned out good. I mean, well, he, yeah. he unfortunately was not alive to see it, but... It Can worked. we try doing something like that today to kind of motivate people? I would love to see a moon landing in my lifetime. I would love to see, like, I want to see another, I want to see, like, Mars. I want to see oh, someone that would be amazing. Mars. That would be so amazing. I want to see any kind of other planet landing in my lifetime. Yes. I'll take the moon if I can't get Mars. Can we do Pluto? Maybe we should do Mars first. <laughs> it's a little closer. I, I like Pluto. Pluto will always be a planet to me. Pluto's I don't care what people say. Planet. It's my favorite planet. It's, mine's Jupiter. I do like Jupiter too. Because it's big and it's stormy and it's got the big storm spot on it. I love I it. I like Venus. How Venus is like always associated with women and it's like has a very like feminine energy, but they say like the surface of Venus yeah. is like a hellhole. Like it, it is <laughs> volatile. It is just like this like hellscape of an environment which i totally love because it's got this like female vibe but it's like <laughs> it'll crush you to death and kill you <laughs> fun fact in 1963 tension from the cold war and the cuban missile crisis and all that had calmed down a bit and the united states and the ussr were being a little nicer to each other and john f kennedy actually proposed a joint american soviet moon expedition really Yes. However, he was killed in November of that year, oh. and Lyndon Johnson, uh, who succeeded him as president, didn't pursue it when he took over. Lyndon dropped the ball. I wonder how that would have worked out if it wasn't like a space race between the U.S. and the Soviets, if it was a joint mission and we all went to the moon together, you go together. how that would influence things today. Yeah, I don't know. If anything would be different. Yeah, I don't know. So the space race is on, and it's funny how the United States is considered the, the winner of the space race when the Soviets did pretty much everything else first. <laughs> they launched the first satellite, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the hard and soft landings of spacecrafts on the moon, spacewalks. They brought back the first lunar samples from unmanned missions. They landed a spacecraft on Venus, but in 1971, what? yes. Really? In 1971, they did. But the United States is still considered the winner because we landed on the moon first. So I think probably landing on the moon was the ultimate goal. That was the finish line. Uh, yeah, but the Russians went to Venus. That's... They landed a spacecraft on Venus in 1971. Awesome. What is it? Like, what's it doing? Is I have it no there? idea now. <laughs> is it there anymore? <laughs> Venus probably crushed it to death. <laughs> just chilling on the moon or on Venus. Just rolling around. So here's some perspective for you, and this was very mind-blowing to me. Charles Lindbergh's first solo flight across the Atlantic was the first time that humans crossed the ocean by plane was in 1927. Mm -hmm. We put humans on the moon in 1969. That's a 42-year difference. 
Which is not that much. No. The first flight ever, the first flight ever by the Wright brothers was in 1903, and we landed on the moon 66 years later. So there are some people who witnessed all three of these events in their lifetime. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy that we did so much? Like, what have we witnessed? We have the internet. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) It's good and bad. It's kind of lost its luster at this point, but whatever. (laughs) So back to the Soviet Union. On April 12th, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space. When he returned, he was celebrated as an international hero. However... Back then, there was a lot of people who did not accept this story as being true. The Soviets were masters at propaganda, and many Mm -hmm. people thought this was simply a tact to make it seem like that they were farther ahead technologically than the Americans were. President Kennedy even had to go on TV acknowledging the accomplishment, and it still didn't change some people's minds. And the late 50s and early 60s were a time of deep Soviet secrecy. The Soviets sought to control information in and out of their space program. And as the Smithsonian article put it, it's a lot easier to stay on track if you don't make your timeline public. So John F. Kennedy made the American space timeline public. Put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Yeah. And we all know the major milestones and setbacks that that program had. Mm Mm-hmm. But a side effect of all that secrecy was that the general public and some of the world at large could only speculate about what was happening or what had happened. On March 25th, 1961, this is weeks before Yuri Gagarin's flight, a human figure in an ejector seat parachuted down into a remote part of the Soviet Union. Locals were slightly apprehensive. They didn't know what this thing was. (laughs) Parachuting a man coming down from the sky. They thought it maybe was a spy or somebody from the West or some kind of weapon or they didn't know what it was. Officials told them, stay back. It's just a flight test dummy. Nothing to see here. Go back Hmm. to your homes type of thing. Yet Yuri Gagarin was supposed to be the first man in space and there's been no notifications of any cosmonauts dying in space. So who was this person? What was their deal? Well, nobody would say. The only thing we have right now is his name. Ivan Ivanovich. Very Russian name. It is, isn't it? (laughs) So some people speculated that Ivan was the real first person in space, but then he died somewhere in the process or like among landing. And since the Soviets aren't going to announce a total failure, they're going to cover up his death until they brought a human home alive. Right. Enter two brothers from Italy named Art. Here we go with pronunciation. (laughs) Here we go. Achille and Gian Cordelia. Cordelia, that's an easy one. Cordelia. C-O-R-D-I-G-L-I-A. I I had to look it up. Sounds right. But I hear Cordelia, so apologies if that's wrong. Sorry. From early in their childhoods, they've always been interested in radio technology and learning to build their own radio equipment. Their father told them to stop tinkering with all their electronics and go back to studying, but their mother was a little more supportive of their hobby and helped them buy 300 pounds of surplus radio equipment that the United States military sold off. Lord. They bought 300 pounds at five cents a pound, and they reworked it until they built their own radio and satellite capable of monitoring spacecrafts. Whoa. Right? The Reader's Digest article from 1965 said that their radios were impressive even to professionals. I'm such a failure. 
<laughs> what are we doing with what our am lives? i doing with my life <laughs> we can't even figure out how to podcast in person this we is... are purposely sitting uncomfortably to please our cats yes <laughs> seriously these guys are building radios from yeah. homemade equipment like scratch equipment that can reach space <laughs> Their whole story is impressive, but they even built their own satellite dish and connected with about 15 other space radio enthusiasts around the world. So they learned of, so when they learned of satellites and space travel beginning, they were super excited. Well, yeah. They were able to monitor the radio traffic and learn when launches were happening, and they could alert their 15 friends around the globe with their satellite dishes so they could kind of together monitor the satellite's movement or radio talk and see how the missions are going. Mm-hmm. They were all so good at monitoring and tracking these things that when the Soviets launched Luna 4 to land on the moon in 1963, the brothers projected that it would miss by 5,000 miles. Luna 4 missed by 5,281 miles. Oh my gosh. (laughs) They're pretty close. Wow. The Reader's Digest article goes so far to say that the brothers won a contest with a $3,000 prize, after which they bought plane tickets to America. (laughs) They toured Kennedy Space Center and all of the big space places here in Alabama and Texas. They allegedly got compliments and kudos from the director of the Goddard Space Flight Center, saying, you know, hey, boys, good job. While visiting Cape Kennedy at the time, now it's Cape Canaveral, They're said to have played tapes of recordings of John Glenn's radio conversations, which surprised NASA because they always kept their frequency secret until after the flight so Mm -hmm. they could keep the airwaves clear. Yeah. The brothers allegedly figured out what frequency was needed based on the size and shape of his spacecraft, and they were able to hone in and listen in on it. I don't, how? Like, I don't even, I don't even know. Right? (laughs) I mean, I also think that. If you had won $3,000, you would buy tickets to places like that. Like, you would go see space centers. Like, I feel like that's something you would do. Oh, I would 100% do it. I went to Kennedy Space Center twice when I lived in Florida, and I was like a kid at a theme park or something. (laughs) That's one thing I didn't do. Oh, God, it's amazing. It is so amazing. Like, skip Disney and all the Orlando parks, which I think are kind of cool, but I mean, I've never really had any personal desire to go to Disney. A lot of people I know that have families go and they have a good time. But I'm thinking, just go to Cape Canaveral, go see the space shuttle, go see the Saturn V rockets, like, go see all the things. It's amazing. If you're interested in any kind of space flight or space travel or space in general, it is an incredible, incredible place. Maybe we'll plan a trip there. And you get a free bus tour. It takes you all around the vehicle assembly building and the launch pads, which we got to go to. Sweet. Let's do it. Let's go. A website called astrosurf.com had an article saying that NASA made a deal with the Cordelia brothers, that NASA would give them two frequencies that they used that were still secret in exchange for two frequencies they had picked up from the Soviets. Oh. And the article alleged that the brothers made the deal. Now, you have to take this with a grain of salt, though, because I found no confirmation of this of any kind online beyond this article. And anything I did find kind of repeated the same details. Okay. And I don't prefer to deal in speculation or hearsay or anything. But this is the kind of environment they were dealing with. There's so much speculation and hearsay and propaganda and rumors and just unknown factors when it came to monitoring Soviet and American space exploration. Right. Now, the brothers recorded most of what they heard. One of their most famous recordings was made November 28th, 1960. After about two hours of listening to some static 
there was an SOS signal that was moving away from Earth. Unmanned spacecrafts, however, wouldn't have a need to send SOS signals. Yeah. So they wondered, was there a person on the spacecraft? Hmm. Amateurs in Texas and Germany also picked up the same message. Quick question, though. Mm-hmm. Could, like, you have some kind of unmanned spacecraft having some kind of, like, technical problem sending out an SOS signal? Possibly. I would think so. Yeah. That's what I would think. Mm-hmm. Three days later, the Soviet Union allegedly admitted a launch which had ended in failure, but did not mention a person being on board. Okay. In November 1963, the brothers said they recorded the voice of a female cosmonaut re-entering the Earth's atmosphere in a malfunctioning spacecraft. And in the recording, she is heard to have cried out, I'm hot, as it burned up. Oh, The brothers eventually released nine recordings over a period of four years, and here's a sample of them. In May 1960, a crewed spacecraft reports that it's going off course. In February 1961, a cosmonaut is audibly recorded suffocating to death. Mm. The Reader's Digest article mentions the brothers taking a recording to a cardiologist to play, and the doctor said that like the heartbeat sounded like the heartbeat of a dying person. God. These guys are and- smart. In April 1961, a capsule is recorded orbiting the Earth three times before re-entering the Earth's atmosphere just days before Yuri Gagarin would make his historic flight. Remember this one. Okay. In November 1962, a space capsule misjudges re-entry, bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere and out into space. In November 1963, a female cosmonaut dies during re-entry. That's probably the one where the woman allegedly says, I'm hot. I'm hot. In April 1964, another cosmonaut is killed when his capsule burns up in the Earth's atmosphere. That's terrifying. So the brothers came to a conclusion. They think the Soviets are launching all kinds of manned missions into space, but only making public the successful ones. Shady. So far, the only one being Yuri Gagarin's flight in 1961. Right. In the Sun newspaper out of New York, a TV producer and Russian translator named Paul Sarensky is quoted as saying there's a handful of people who know for a fact that Yuri Gagarin was not the first person in space. Hmm. And although it's a small community newspaper, the author of the story is named Lou Veraccio. He was a former NASA science writer involved with the NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador Program in Vermont. So it's not just some small town writer trying right. to tell a good story. Like this author has a little more credibility. Credibility. Credi- I don't have credibility in my speech. I'm like, what was that word? <laughs> <laughs> According to Paul, a pilot named Vladimir Illusion Jr. was the real first man in space. We're going to talk more about him in depth. Vlad. Both the Sun article and CollectSpace.com mention a news article written by Dennis Ogden. He was a British communist reporter who was the Moscow correspondent for the Daily Worker newspaper. He wrote in April 1961 that a cosmonaut was still undergoing tests and observation upon his return to Earth and the plan was for him to circle the Earth three times come back. Okay. A French correspondent also picked up on the story, and it was set, It was starting to be said that the man was Vladimir Lucian, the son of a prominent aircraft designer. I'm just going to call him Vladimir because that's easier to pronounce. <laughs> but <laughs> um, his dad actually designed the aircraft that is still the second most produced aircraft in history. Really? And I think I said produced. Produced. You said produced. 
I just let it slide. Thank you. <laughs> what is the aircraft? Like um it's called something Russian. Oh, okay. It's, I think it's named after him. It's called like the Lucian something. Okay. I'm just curious. I won't make you try to pronounce Russian <laughs> again. <laughs> again. <laughs> Vladimir was a skilled test pilot. He piloted the maiden flights of damn near every Soviet aircraft. And he once flew a plane so precisely that it caused a major software malfunction in that aircraft. Check this out. Basically, he flew the plane down to the absolute exact geographical position as the mission input. And the software didn't know what to do with it because it thought it was impossible for anybody to hit this perfectly. So the software's (laughs) flipping out. The software's like, wait, you did it? I don't know what to do. (laughs) My job is done. Right. He was a hotshot pilot. Like the son called him the Soviet version of Chuck Yeager. He had personal ties to Nikita Khrushchev. So it was possible that he could have been in a prime position to be on the short list of people to go into space the first time. Like he was basically kind of a celebrity. So some people see this as supporting evidence that Vladimir would have been chosen over a relatively unknown test pilot like Yuri Gagarin. Mm -hmm. The story goes that on April 7th, 1961, the Soviets conducted a launch. Vladimir was to orbit the Earth three times, come back, and during a descent, eject himself from the spacecraft and parachute to Earth. Because at the time, the Soviets hadn't designed a better landing method. Okay. So this is how they did it. Kind of like our boy Ivan. Sounds terrifying. Oh, yeah. I think going into space for the first time ever would be terrifying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I mean, I would still go, but... I mean, to come back <laughs> <Yeah>. in. <laughs> On April 8th, this is the next day after the launch, Dennis Ogden wrote his story about Vladimir's flight. He alleged that upon re-entry, Vladimir was unable to eject from his vehicle and instead crashed into the ground. Ooh. But he crashed within the borders of China, who at the time was not very friendly with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So official Soviet news agencies reported no such information, no launch, no crash, nothing. But they did report that Vladimir had just been involved in a pretty serious car crash and was laid up in a Moscow hospital, and he was in pretty bad shape. Um, understatement. On April 12th, five days after Vladimir's alleged launch, Yuri Gagarin launched into space. Hmm. 188 minutes later, he ejected himself from his spacecraft and parachuted safely to Earth. As the Soviet Union celebrated the very first human in space, some people believe that the government made up the story about Vladimir's car accident to cover up his failed launch because although he survived, he was in no shape to be presented to the public. Mm -hmm. They needed a healthy, successful, unharmed person to present to the world. So this Vladimir did not survive, right? Or did he? He kind of did. Yeah. Are you serious? I mean, he don't kind of did. You either do or you don't. (laughs) You either did or you're not. (laughs) You do. So he survived, like, crash landing from space? Allegedly, yeah. If you believe the story. If you believe the story. Mm, I don't want to say much because it's Russia, but I have thoughts. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Vladimir sort of fell off the radar, so to speak, for a little while. The official word was that he was in a coma from his accident, but conspiracy theorists believe that he was being kept deep in China, either as a hostage or he was just in really bad medical condition. And plus, he was kind of a celebrity, so the Chinese would have a good reason to keep him alive so they can use him as a hostage or bargaining chip or something later on if they need to. I don't think he survived. 
1999, a producer with Global Science Productions produced a documentary about Vladimir's flight with the assistance of Paul Sorensky. He was the guy quoted in the Sun article. Mm -hmm. In this film, they alleged that Vladimir was the first into space. He crash landed in China and he was being held there for more than a year. Apparently, later on, China and the Soviet Union made some secret deal to return him, which they did. Because this producer was able to meet him in Moscow and hear him tell his story. Oh, okay. He said that Vladimir was living with his wife and just kind of chilling. He was still active as a test pilot and aircraft designer. And that Vladimir refused to talk with him on camera, but told him everything off camera. Are they sure it was the same person? I think they're sure it was the same person. I just can't get over the fact that he like crash landed from space and survived. Yeah, I don't think that would be possible. So you I just think don't. he's dead too? I just don't think. Well, I think he lived, but I question whether or not he actually went into space. Oh, okay. I know. This is the sucky part. Like, this is where you have to be responsible and just kind of like debunk some of the crazy theories. You can imagine the Cordelia brothers had these super secret recordings and they would be analyzed by every top of the line equipment with the highest technology available at the time. And not to mention these recordings piqued the public interest. So these tapes would have been listened to left and right. Mm -hmm. One common theme of the tapes is that these cosmonauts said to have been Soviet Air Force pilots didn't always speak in standard communication protocols. Like, they don't identify themselves. They don't use correct terminology, like how you say, Roger that, over. Mm -hmm. In one recording in 1961, the brothers allegedly hear a cosmonaut say, conditions growing worse. Why don't you answer? We're going slower. The world will never know about us. And remember us to the motherland. We are lost. We are lost. Ah, motherland. Which, to me, that's a very dramatic thing to say if you're just lost and floating out into space. I would let loose a string of profanities, (laughs) or I would just be like, screw protocol, like, tell my family I love them, don't, like, make sure you give little Miss our medicine, like, take care of my cat. (laughs) Unless your kitty is with you. I don't think I would ever say, like, we are lost and remember me to the motherland. I don't give a crap if people remember me or not. (laughs) Yeah, but, like, the motherland is big to Russians. I guess it is, yeah. Other recordings had grammatical errors in sentences, or what sounded like meaningless chatter, indicating that the speaker might might not have been fluent in Russian. Okay. Some voices on the recordings mention heading out into deep space, yet the spacecraft used at the time didn't have enough power or thrusters to get out of low Earth orbit. And the whole point is to get somebody in space and bring them back, so there's no need to bog down your spacecraft with all this extra weight. No, they're like, we're going big. We're going deep space. (laughs) You don't need them. They didn't develop the technology to leave low orbit until 1969, so... That we know of. And here's something that's just my opinion... That if these recordings were legitimate, I highly doubt that they would go to America and just get like a pat on the head and good job from NASA. (laughs) Really? I think the U.S. government would be like, wait, what? You boys need a job? Like, we're going to hire you on the spot. Yeah. We're going to give you all kinds of money and all this high tech equipment. You do what you do. Mm -hmm. And I think the Soviets would kind of be after them to not let them be hired by the Americans. Yes. As far as Vladimir's alleged flight, the producers of the documentary are telling a story that's heard secondhand from somebody who wasn't even there when this meeting allegedly happened. Okay. So it's kind of like he told me, like, I'm telling you the story from somebody that told me what he was told. Okay. <laughs> they don't know. We know they know we know. <laughs> 
So you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. And plus, if, Val- if Vladimir was the real first person in space, again, I'm pretty sure the Soviet government would have made sure that he died in that, quote, car crash he was in. Yeah. And never lived to tell about it because mm-hmm. that's a huge secret. Right. And the filmmakers also alleged that Yuri Gagarin was killed because he knew this secret and the government was starting to feel uneasy about him possibly spilling the beans. Uh Uh-oh. He died in 1968 in a training flight and those circumstances were kept secret until about seven or eight years ago. And he was on like a a training mission of some sort and the weather kind of got really bad and he had to perform a sudden maneuver to avoid colliding with another plane and it Mm kind of caused him to tailspin out and crash a little. Hmm. I mean, crash a lot, but crash a little, mini crash, crash, just crashed a little bit. It only killed like a international hero. It only killed the first man in space, but just a little crash, just a little crash. (laughs) And finally, if you have a conspiracy theory this big, I don't think you're just not going to get everybody involved to be quiet. I feel like somebody's going to talk if the price is right. Right. Well, it's like the outlaw. Yeah. Even though I do think that there's more to that. Now I want to talk about another cosmonaut. Vladimir Komarov. I'm going to call him Komarov to not confuse him with the other Vladimir. <laughs> it's like Vladimir and then in our Dyatlov episode, everyone was Yuri. Yes, yes. And we have a Yuri in this episode too. <laughs> in 1967, he was on a space mission and said, it said that he was radioing Alexei Kosygin. He was a pretty high up Soviet official and he was ripping him a new one because Komarov was plummeting to earth and he knows that he's going to die. So he's on the radio like F you, F you, whatever. As NPR put in their article, he was cursing the people who put him inside a botched oh. spaceship. <laughs> I would do that too. This is what would be on the recordings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All this in the NPR article comes from a book called Starman by Jamie Doran and Piers Bizzoni, which is a biography about Yuri Gagarin. And I had this book on hold from the library and I plan to read it. But I'll tell you why I didn't in a little bit, because you know I love books. I still might read it later on for fun. But the bulk of the book is based on interviews with a former KGB officer with a name I can't even begin to pronounce and a story published in a Russian newspaper. Okay. Um, Venyamin Ivanovich Rosayev. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Sounds good to me. Yeah. In 1967... The leader of the Soviet Union wanted to arrange a docking of two spacecrafts and perform a little special little maneuver in space on the 50th anniversary of the communist revolution. Basically, two ships are going to go up. They're going to dock in space. The cosmonauts are going to swap places and return in the other one's spaceship. Okay. Little switch. Vladimir Komarov was one of the pilots set to fly. Okay. However, technicians and Yuri Gagarin himself inspected the spacecraft and found more than 200 separate problems. And Yuri suggested that this was not safe to fly in. In fact, whoever went up in it likely wasn't going to come home. He suggested the flight be postponed. I bet they didn't listen. This is very challenger when people are like, yeah, they think the O-rings are not going to like make it. You shouldn't do this flight. Did you ever watch that Netflix series? No, I think it oh, made me cry. Oh, it was so good. It made me cry too, but it was so good. When we went to Kennedy Space Center, they have pieces of Challenger in Columbia in this room. It's and my you mom go in watching it. And they got the music and the dramatic lighting and everything. It'll bring you to tears. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. What what year? That was 85, right? 85, 86? 
86 was, was Challenger. 86. 86. Yeah. Yeah. Yuri wrote a long memo detailing the problems and gave it to his friend, the KGB agent interviewed in the book. But the thing is, whoever got this memo kept refusing to pass it up higher the chain because nobody was going to be the one to tell the Soviet leader that the mission probably shouldn't happen. Yes. Most people who even saw the memo were stationed in Siberia or demoted from their current positions, including the KGB agent. Okay. So Komarov knew he wasn't going to make it back. People asked him why not just refuse to go. Well, the backup pilot would have to go instead. And the backup pilot was his best friend and national hero, Yuri Gagarin. Oh, my gosh. So if Komarov didn't go... They would force Yuri to go, and then Yuri would die. Oh, I don't want anyone to die. Now, why Yuri Gagarin just didn't refuse either, I don't know. Because I doubt the Soviets would be like, yes, you have to go, because he's kind of a national treasure to them. Yeah. It'd be like us making Neil Armstrong take an experimental flight that we know he wasn't going to come back from (laughs) after walking on the moon. Right. But yeah. Komarov just wanted to save his friend. Like, to him, it's not international hero and celebrity, Yuri Gagarin. It's like my best friend. Yeah. It'd be like being you. I know. We would band together and both I would, just say we're we not We would going. both just quit. Yeah, we would yeah. both just quit. Like, what are they going to do? Kill us? We're going to die anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not going to go. On launch day, April 23rd, 1967, a Russian journalist reported that Yuri showed up in a flight suit ready to go, but they held him back. Komarov launched. Failure started soon after with power problems, everything, navigation issues. Mm. His partner, who was supposed to launch after him to dock with his spacecraft, his launch got canceled. So he was just up there all by himself, or going so all by himself? Komarov got the, got the go-ahead to come home, but then his parachutes wouldn't open. Oh, no. The NPR article has the recording, the real recording... Because the NSA in the United States was listening from their Air Force station in Istanbul. So this Mm -hmm. isn't just like some brothers in Italy that have questionable recordings. This is like legit government thing. Mm -hmm. I don't speak Russian, so I don't know what they said. (laughs) Um, The story goes that he was talking about how hot it was getting in the capsule and he said the word killed. Killed. As in like, you guys just got me me killed. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I don't speak Russian. I did read a transcript of it, though, and I don't know if it's the entire conversation, but he didn't mention the word killed. He just kind of like, they're talking back and forth, and it just kind of goes staticky, and they're like, Mm -hmm. come in, over, hello, hello, and then like nothing on his end. Yeah. Yuri Gagarin gave an interview a few weeks after the crash, and he was sharply critical of officials who let him fly. They say that only a bone fragment survived, and there's a photo on NPR's article of a burnt-up ball of... Like something, something that supposedly looks like Komarov's body. Oh, it's no. badly charred. It's well, super yeah. small and just kind of crushed up. Like it looks like maybe the size of a toddler. Like oh, he was God. a human adult male and then it's just, it's disturbing. Oh. The book says that Yuri also met with his KGB agent friend at his apartment, but refused to talk in there in case it was bugged. So they talked in the stairwells instead. Yuri allegedly told his friend that he wanted to meet with the Soviet leader who authorized the launch, but his KGB friend was like, I don't think that's a good idea. You need to be careful about it. Yeah. Like, just just, just let it go. 
And Yuri in 1967 was a different person than he was in 1961. Now he mm-hmm. was a lot angrier. He's more depressed. He's like losing his friends and he's yeah. unhappy with the way things are going. And again, Yuri died in the plane crash in 1968. And some people think that this was, again, to keep him silent about mm-hmm. secrets that he might have known. The book does publish a rumor that before Yuri's death, he did meet with that Soviet leader and allegedly threw a drink in his face. Oh, so we don't know if that's true or not. That's it's hmm. pretty, pretty I hope ballsy. It's true. <laughs> now, here's the reason I didn't read the book because okay. a little while after NPR published their article about the book, they wrote a follow up article saying, "quote A bunch of space historians wrote in to say that, in their view, many of the details in this book were either questionable or simply not true." Oh, so that's why I didn't read it because I didn't want to get too many things that were not true. Yeah. Some things are true, some are not, some are questionable. Even the authors themselves said that they would be willing to amend it should it be brought to their attention. So that's good that they're willing to right. correct discrepancies. And among the discrepancies are that Yuri was never meant to be the backup pilot. He was the backup pilot in name only to pressure other people into going. Okay. They never intended to send him back up because he's far too valuable. Hell no, right. they're not going to send him up. Yep, they need him. Another is that that memo that Yuri supposedly wrote never existed, but we all know how documents can be when you're talking about certain governments and certain times, mm-hmm. like it, it, somebody could have just shredded it for all we know. Yep. Some critics say that the KGB agent friend of Yuri's was there just to quote, keep him in line and that there's no way to back up what he claims they talked about because Yuri's, he obviously died. Yeah. So he could be telling the truth or he could just be some guy looking for 15 minutes of fame and connection to like a really big story. Mm-hmm. Did Yuri really show up in a spacesuit? Some people say no, but the authors say yes. A Soviet journalist said he witnessed the incident and that Yuri did insist on flying. Okay. About the alleged ripping a new one to somebody over the radio, an American <laughs> historian, Asif Siddiqui, got a transcript of the final transmission from Komarov's flight from the Russian State Archive, and there's no mention of the word killed or him talking about the capsule heating up. They're speaking normally, and then ground control just loses communication with them. Hmm. I wonder. The author of the NPR article asked Siddiqui if he thought the transcript had been doctored, but he said he thought it was genuine. One of the book's authors said that an official Soviet transcript of anything wasn't worth the paper it's written on, okay. meaning you can't trust it. Yep. In this incident, we know for a fact that Komarov launched and he died. Yuri was angry and depressed after the incident. But again, the Soviet government's still super secretive around this time, so we don't know a lot. And there's a lot of still speculation out there. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you about one more cosmonaut, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Okay. In April of 1960, this is before Yuri's famous flight, Valentin Bondarenko was chosen as one of the first 20 cosmonauts in the Soviet Union. Valentin. He's the youngest of the first group. He was pleasant and mild-mannered, and he earned the nickname Tinkerbell from his colleagues. Tinkerbell. (laughs) In March of that year, he was part of a 15-day experiment in a low-pressure environment. Basically, he stayed in some kind of pressure chamber where... Um, After it was over, they could study the effects, Mm -hmm. like how it is on your body. After he finished with his work for the day, he took off some light biosensors from his body and he cleaned them off with the cotton ball soaked in rubbing alcohol. He tossed the cotton balls to the trash can. But one of them accidentally landed on a hot plate that he was using to heat up some tea with. Oh, no. Rubbing alcohol, cotton. 
Heat. It's not good. Heat. <laughs> yeah. So it caught on fire. Oh, no. He tried to smother the flames himself and, like, ended up catching his clothes on fire, too. His pressure chamber was at least 50% oxygen, so the fire spread pretty fast. No. And because of the pressure difference, it took people almost half an hour to get the door open. Yeah, because you have to, you have to like, make it equalize, right? This is, like, almost the exact scenario from the Apollo wind fire that killed Ed White, Gus Grissom, and Roger Chaffee. Yeah, that's what and, I was thinking of. Yeah. Valentin had been, he had survived up to this point. They took him to the hospital and he had severe burns all over his body. And the only place they could find for an IV was in the soles of his feet because his boots didn't burn away like the skin and stuff. He still had a little bit of like Mm -hmm. body there. Yuri Gagarin actually went to the hospital to check on him and Valentin died 16 hours after the fire started. Oh gosh. Three weeks later, Yuri went up on his flight. How fast turnaround time is this? Yeah, seriously. The Soviet Union did not publish any information about Valentin's death at the time, yet he had been photographed and done interviews along with the other original 19 cosmonauts, so people were starting to wonder if something was up. This does not help the rumors that the Soviets are covering up deaths of their own cosmonauts. Yeah, why would they cover it up? It's just like a freak accident. It's not it's right? a freak accident. Why would you cover it up? A book called Red Star in Orbit by James Oberg talks about how Valentin was airbrushed out of an official photo of the first six cosmonauts in training, and later on, there were some other photos found with other cosmonauts airbrushed out. This is like early Photoshop. I was going to say Photoshop. (laughs) News of Valentin's death wasn't published in the West until 1980, and in the Soviet Union, it wasn't made public until 1980. In 1971, the Apollo 15 crew placed a plaque on the moon with the names of astronauts and cosmonauts who were killed on duty, but because the Soviets kept Valentin's death hidden for so long, his is the only name not on the plaque. Someone needs to go up there and write it in. Let's do it. Let's go. You and me. (laughs) We'll replace the plaque or we'll just like chisel it in. Vladimir Komarov is on it. Yuri Gagarin is on it. Valentin is not on it. Yeah, we need to go put that on there. Quick trip. To the moon. <laughs> Just to the moon and back. Just be right back. <laughs> By the way, do you remember Ivan Ivanovich, the cosmonaut I talked about in the beginning who crashed in the remote field and parachuted down? People said, it's just a dummy. Stay back. Nothing yes. to see here. Yes. Ivan is alive today. What? He lives in Washington, D.C. He's like, I'm not a dummy. At the Smithsonian. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He is a dummy. <laughs> Ivan Ivanovich is the Russian equivalent of John Doe. Oh. And in March 1961, he took a flight into space. Okay, so he's not a dummy. He's an actual he, person? No, he's a dummy. Okay. <laughs> the Soviets needed him to test microphones and audio equipment in the capsules, and they needed to figure out a good way to do it. Okay. If they sent a recording, which is what they intended to do, they had to make sure it wasn't confused with the real person because they knew people were listening. <laughs> So what they did was record a choir singing, figuring that anybody listening will know you're not going to fit like a soprano, (laughs) alto, tenor, bass ensemble in a little tiny space capsule. (laughs) And at the same time, they're trying to prove that they have nothing to hide because they're well aware of the cosmonaut rumors and and Mm -hmm. how they're perceived in some places in the world. So our friend Ivan Ivanovich launched, launched into space. He orbited the Earth and he alternated between singing choral music and repeating a recipe for beetroot soup. 
<laughs> I wonder what that recipe is. I don't know, but that's what I want to hear on the brothers' recording. Yeah, I want to hear like, this recipe. I want to know what this recipe is. I want to make it. This is great soup. Where did you get the recipe? Oh, from space. From space. Ivan gave it to me. <laughs> We should put it. We should make a darker side of life cookbook with space yeah. soup in space soup, zombie cucumber dip, <laughs> zombie cucumber, meat shower meatloaf. Ew, <laughs> gross. Nobody will ever buy our cookbook. No. <laughs> so that's my story. That's the story of the lost cosmonauts. Oh, I, I didn't know any of those. Really? None. So I think it's half and half. I do not think that the Soviet Union was purposely covering up like cosmonauts that are bouncing off into space. I don't think that there was a bunch of failed launches and you don't recordings of, you know, remember us to the motherland and such. Oh, they yeah. did cover. I mean, there is evidence of them covering up um, like Valentin Bondarenko's accident and right. And Komarov's flight where he crashed into the earth and the spell in the failed spacecraft. We know that one's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that Vladimir Lucian was the first person in space. I think he really was in a car crash. Oh, so you don't think he like tried to go and didn't make it up to space and then crashed? No, I think it probably really was a car crash because again, I just think that it's too big of a secret to keep. Yeah. But if you're threatened with like bodily harm, to yourself for your family you're gonna keep it and even if even if he was the first person in space and he died on or he got really seriously injured in this crash they could just make put him out of his misery and just not live with that risk yeah that's true if anybody finding out so i mean i think the tapes of the cordelia brothers are hoaxes but there is evidence of the Soviet Union covering up and just not being public with some deaths. Right. Keeping and things is, kind of under wraps. Yeah. To so, save face. There are some people that, however, that 100% believe that they did it on purpose and they did absolutely not announce anything successful until Yuri Gagarin's flight. I think it's more fun that way. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, that's the thing about conspiracies is... Yeah. They make sense. Good I conspiracies. I do love a good conspiracy theory. Good conspiracies. Conspiracies these days have taken on a whole new meaning. I'm talking about Whoa. good conspiracies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I love space stuff. I want to go I to space. Too. I would love to go to space. Just for a quick trip. <laughs> just, the, just a little orbit around. Just a little orbit around. <laughs> then I'm just good go around to go. a couple times and come back. Cool story. So, what do we think? Do we think that they're keeping secrets on purpose? I think they're keeping secrets. I think all of it was kept secret. <laughs> no, I think some probably were. I mean, yeah, uh, there is definite evidence of some of them, at least yeah. one being kept secret. There's a crazy coincidence with the other one. And then there's one that's probably not accurate at all. Right. I think that's just pretty standard. You're going to have some truths and some half truths. But, you know, in a way, having it be a mix of everything, instead of it being all accurate or all a conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. having a mix of some true and some not true and then some unknown or questionable makes it an even bigger conspiracy theory. Right. Well, because nothing is ever black and white. It's always because, gray. Right. No matter what side you land on or what you believe, you can find a piece of evidence to support your, your theory. Mm -hmm. 
in this yeah. case. Yes. So it's whatever you decide you believe, I guess. We'll never know for sure. Nope, not now we won't. Nope. I still would really like that soup recipe. <laughs> I just want to get a space recipe, man. That would be cool. And I want that guy's name on the plaque. I know. We should go up there and carve it for him. I'm telling you, let's just do it. I got vacation time. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need a couple weeks off, please. I'm going to the moon. Can I have this date off to this date? Yeah, where are you going? To the moon. To the moon. Kristen has lost it. <laughs> <laughs> She's done. Well, listen, we can go to the moon and put his name on the plaque. And then, and then also escape Earth, where we set oceans on fire. Exactly. So, we opened a portal. It's a twofer. <laughs> well, what do we do after the names on the plaque? Do we come back to Earth? I mean, I guess we have to. Maybe we could like, splash down into the portal to hell that opens. And see what happens. <laughs> Maybe it's a black hole in the ocean. We'll just go through the Earth and out the it'll, other side. It'll pop us back out. Hawk <laughs> <laughs> us out like a loogie. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll just go bouncing off into space remember us to the motherland <laughs> oh, motherland <laughs> it's like now be what my we'll, cat. Just be, we'll just be chilling in the capsule <laughs> you and me just hanging out our transmission will be our last podcast I'm like let's yeah. tell stories until it dies out no because we don't know how to podcast in the same space <laughs> you get on that side of the capsule I'll get on this side of the capsule <laughs> We have to put a wall between us. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I do want to tell one story from a reader email before we sign off. Okay. It comes from DJ. He tells a story about a demon that's attached to him. What? Yeah. DJ. <laughs> oh no. It starts oh. out like this. Hey y'all, which kudos to the y'all because yes. Southern girls love the y'all. Yes. So I have a story that I'll give you just the bare bones of, as this has been ongoing for about 10 years now. I My want, wife like, I full bones. Give me full bones. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I are pagan, but before I met her and we were first dating, I was Catholic. We were living together in a small apartment, and one night a friend of hers came over hysterical and crying, claiming that a demon spirit was following her and wanted her dead. My wife oh. immediately started performing a protective spell on her, and I, being super protective but stupid, asked where this demon was at. <laughs> No. <laughs> she claimed that it was sitting on the roof and because our home was protected by my wife's spells, it could not enter. I rushed outside and yelled at the roof, leave her alone. If you want to fuck with somebody, then fuck with me. Oh, DJ. Me, being, me being freshly out of the military, I was admittedly a little bit high strung. <laughs> oh. I swear right after yelling this, two amber eyes appeared on the roof. They looked like they had a cat's eyes when a light was shown on them in the dark. Oh, God. I've always heard this with ghosts and like spirits. If you ever feel like a presence around that you say out loud you're not welcome here. Leave me alone. And if you're stern about it, then it's kind of like not giving them. Yeah. But those are ghosts. Demons are a whole new game. I know. So I'm like, I'm kind of glad I'm not the only person that is like kind of done this before. Oh, I've done it for like, if I've felt uneasy with thinking that there's like a spirit or ghost, but demons. I did it once when I had the worst dream I've ever had in my life. I'll tell you about this when I'm done with the email. Okay. So after that night continued fairly normal until it was time for bed. My wife was asleep and I just lay there watching television. I had to keep the volume super low to not awaken her. I started to hear a noise like wood being scraped for which I didn't give much interest to. Also on several occasions I would hear a loud breath like the noise a bull makes when, with its nose when it's angry. You know, hey, like I've a, heard that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was finally able to get to sleep when something smacked my face and woke me up. Hey. I was, 
I was laying on my back with my arms by my side, right above my head with the same eyes. You could see right through them like ghost eyes or something. I tried to yell, but my wife, I tried to yell to my wife, but only air came out. Oh, no, 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 no. I also could not move for about 20 minutes. This is very much like my dream. I finally shot up and grabbed the knife we had next to our bed. Stupid, I know. What's a knife going to do? But, I mean, you never know when you're going to need. You should always have a weapon next to your bed. Yes. My wife woke up and asked me what was wrong when I told her. She said, see, I told you not to provoke it. Now it's with you. (laughs) DJ, I like your wife. She knows what's up. (laughs) I was able to get back to sleep again until I had to get up for work. While I was in the shower, I noticed bruises in the shape of three-fingered handprints on my arms and legs. (gasps) I've had that happen. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, hell no. Yeah, I'll tell you about that, too. Okay. This freaked me right the hell out, and I called out of work. I don't blame you. 100% don't blame you. Yeah. The rest of the day was semi-normal, but on the following day, I was in a freak motorcycle accident that had me hospitalized for two weeks. Oh, God, DJ. I'm so glad you made it through. Yes. I lost my job. My wife, at the time, my girlfriend, for three months, left me. She came back. Smiley face. Good. So they're still back together. I lost my home and had nothing but bad luck. There's so much more to this, but to cut this email short, this happened 10 years ago in every home I've lived in, myself and my family have been, quote, haunted. We've seen things, heard things, had stuff move, thrown, etc. Anyway, sorry for the long email, but maybe the story of mine will interest you, and it does. Yes. And as far-fetched as it may seem, this really did happen and continues to this day. Love y'all's podcast and keep up the good work. Thank you, DJ. I will say I may be contacting you. <laughs> He's in our email, so you can just sign okay, in. Okay, I read it now. <laughs> I, I may be contacting you, so just like put a pin in that. Just yes, um, yes. I yes. There's going to be some contact. Oh gosh, <laughs> the dream I had. This was the worst dream I've ever had in my life. I think it was the closest thing to night terrors I've ever had. But you remember the Grudge, the movie The Grudge? Mm-hmm. You remember how the like the monster spirit come from the corner of the wall, and it was like all black and smoky, vaguely. And, it's been a and while. Whatnot. I was laying in bed and then I was sort of dreaming that this thing was coming through the ceiling, but then I couldn't move. Like I was paralyzed and I tried to scream and no sound came out. And then like, I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. I couldn't like do anything. And then I'm like terrified. Like I felt my heart rate, like doing this. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I was panicked. It was like, I was paralyzed. Well, then I woke up and it's like, you don't know if you're dreaming, you're asleep or anything. Well, then I wake up and I'm fully asleep because then I'm like, holy shit, it was just a dream. But then I'm so hyper aware of it. I still can't move. Like I yeah. still cannot move like my limbs for like a good like two minutes. I probably couldn't move. And then I'm sitting there trying to like scream and no sound comes out. Oh, that's terrifying. It's sleep it paralysis. Is. It, yes. And I'm like, and I'm wide awake and I'm like, this is, it was absolutely awful. And then I just took a few deep breaths or whatever. And I think it dawned on me finally that it was like a your dream. brain caught up to be like, yeah. okay. And I'm like, okay, okay, it's fine, it's fine. And I was, I was able to move. I like had to physically get up and out of bed just to prove to myself that I could move. That is and then terrifying. I still felt uneasy, like this thing was coming through the walls. And so I walked through my apartment. And I'm like, if there's any spirits here, you are not welcome. Get out of my apartment. I do not want you here. You are not welcome. <laughs> I just kept repeating it because I guess a little superstition of like things are happening. And no, I, I've heard yeah, that. That's it, what you just, do. If you what apartment? It was, was it? terrifying. The one in Kentucky at Oak Tree. Hobtown. Really? Yes. Yeah, that one. Interesting. Yeah, that was the worst like dream I've ever had in my life, and I still remember it clearly. It was terrible. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, sleep paralysis is no fun. Knock on wood, I haven't had it. But I did wake up with bruises on my leg. I noticed, um, like, in the morning, I noticed there were, like, four bruises. No, it was not yeah. four. It was five hmm. on my leg. 
at first I thought it was four. And then I'm like, no, there's a fifth over on the side. And they were like equally spaced apart, except for the fifth one. Huh. And I put my hand down and Whoa, it was like, yeah, mm-hmm. like a handprint. Mm-hmm. It was How like, did you get those? I probably did it to myself. Possibly. Yeah. I don't know. But did it, it fit your hand? It fit like fingertips. Like it was like fingertips. You would have to squeeze yourself pretty hard to bruise yourself. Mm-hmm. And in your sleep, I feel like you would wake yourself up. Yeah, I didn't wake up. Oh, geez. Yeah, it was like, because I put my hand right on. I was like, yeah, one, two, three, huh. four. And then the fifth, like something had like clutched onto my leg. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I always but... find strange bruises on me, but I'm clumsy. Oh, I always I just, have bruises on me. I have one yeah. on like my upper leg. I'm like, I have no idea where I got, no idea where this came from. I obviously couldn't walk into anything. It's like way up on my thigh. Yeah. Like inner thigh. No idea. I, um, yeah. I've never had any handprint shaped ones or anything weird though. I wake up with scratches a lot, but I figure I do that to myself. Yeah. I'll get scratches sometimes. I figure it's the cat because she paws at my face when she wants to eat. No, <laughs> I've heard of that. <laughs> She's like this. <laughs> no, like I, I mean, when I'm awake, obviously I can be like, oh yeah, I scratched something, but like it's kind of yeah. unsettling when you wake up and you see... You see scratches on you, but knock on wood, this apartment's pretty not haunted. I, I I mean, I don't get any bad vibes here, so that's good. Which is surprising. The stuff that like I talk about and watch and all of that, <laughs> but that's good. Demons? No, I won't mess with demons. No, me neither. I haven't had any bad vibes in the house either. Oh, except for the writing on the bathroom mirror. Yeah, that's creepy. That was weird. <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast before, but this was this was. We discovered it back in May. We moved into the house in late February. And then I think it was sometime in May. Um, we didn't use one of our bathrooms for a long time because we didn't have a shower curtain. And it doesn't have a bathtub or anything. And we had to wait to get a shower curtain. Well, we finally got a shower curtain, so we started using that bathroom. And then the the mirror fogged up. And there was writing on the mirror. I wonder if somebody, like the previous owners or something, like somebody had done it and it just stayed I think so, but I don't know what they wrote it in because we had to clean the mirror before with Windex and stuff, Mm -hmm. but I guess we didn't clean it off enough. I don't know what they wrote it on there with, but it was a really nice positive message. It said something like, no matter how bad things get, like, I will be okay. Like, I'm going to make it. It was something like that. So I'm like, well, this isn't like a get out now type of message. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you're going to die. It was very positive and uplifting. So I think somebody probably wrote that there for like an affirmation to themselves, which... I found kind of nice and sweet. So, yeah. No, I could be okay with that. If yeah, a ghost wants to write that to me, that's totally fine. I know. That'd be awesome. I'm like, thank you. Thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> like, I need that. Yeah. Oh, DJ, I'm happy you're okay, but that's insane. Me too, man. That's, it is insane. Don't yell at demons. <laughs> don't yell at, yeah. Don't invite them into your life. I, I mean, I don't away. know what you do if, you if you are experiencing that i have no idea what to do i know with ghosts but not with demons he said he's actually gotten the point of installing home cameras to try to catch some of the activity if he comes across anything he'll forward it well it sounds like he's kind of gone with it like he's just (laughs) (laughs) yeah like i'm sure dj you want this out of your life but but there's like free coincidences and stuff and i'm like motorcycle accident that's hospitalized for two weeks like that's serious man that's like that's not that's not just moving things around. Like, where is my book? I know I put it down here. <laughs> well, I had that book fall off the shelf behind me at the law office. 
Oh, yeah. And it was nailed me right in the head. Yeah. But yeah, your law happened. office was also in the same building as a morgue used to be. So I yes, see I worked that. right next to the like the uh, autopsy room. Yeah, I could see that. That room always smelled funky. It maybe smelled very chemically. Just, well, maybe a spirit was just recommending it. Like read this. I one. mean, it was, fine. it was a big law book. I'm like, I don't want to read this, but thanks. Maybe it solved the case. You don't it even was know. Hu- like it was a huge book too. We did like I'm trying to help you, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> um you mistake the fact that i was doing law i was not doing law are you kidding i was probably on netflix at that point <laughs> kristen is not a lawyer everybody so. i am not a lawyer i was have never practiced law, law or said <laughs> yes. i was a runner so <laughs> okay okay that's all i have for today well thank you very much it was worth the wait good good i'm glad you think so yes it was so if anybody else has any fun stories they want to share with us, our email is darkersideoflifepodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at darkersideoflifepodcast and on Twitter at dsolpodcast. So drop us a note and say hi. And we'll say hello back eventually. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the story this week. And Kristen, we'll see you, I guess, in two weeks with and- the story. She probably doesn't know what it's going to be yet. I do. I oh, you need, do. I just, I think I do. I just need okay, to good. get going right now. My focus is on my trip, so I yeah. can't like, I can't start it yet, but I think I know what it is. So we'll see you guys in two weeks. See ya. Bye. Bye. You cannot thrust yourself through space with a fart.